Welcome to episode 88 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on women's biographies from church history. I'm Leah Henning, and with me today are regular panelists, Ilya Danner-Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hello, friends. Hi. Hello. Uh, Why don't we take a moment to introduce ourselves before we start our conversation? Uh, Victoria? Hi. Hi. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I am a founding member of the CFP. Uh, I'm married to Michael Farmer of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We live in Minnesota with our two cats, Smirjakov and Dorothy Parker, who are hanging out on the bed with me as I record this. Um, So maybe they will say hi. Uh, I am the Senior Manager of Audience Development at Public Radio International in Minneapolis. Uh, Though this week I have not been at work because I'm currently recovering from foot surgery that I had about five days ago, so I'm like super excited to be occupying my brain and talking to people right now, Uh, and I promise that I did my preparation for this episode while I was not on recovery related narcotics so everything should be coherent <laughs> thank you Ilea. hi i'm Ilea danner grubbs i am a wife and mother stay-at-home mom and homeschooler uh, i am an elementary education uh, profession but i'm currently using that to uh, homeschool my six-year-old and my three-year-old and um, work with uh, the different church ministries and uh, and sister-in-law to Katie Grubbs and David Grubbs, who also are on the Christian Feminist and Christian Humanist podcast. It's a dynasty. <laughs> yes, it's the, uh, the clan. <laughs> well, I'm really glad that we can now welcome you as a regular panelist. Yay! So this is exciting. Thank you. I'm excited to be on. <laughs> And my name is Leah Henning. I um, am an unmarried woman. <laughs> uh, I just recently moved out of the suburbs of the Twin Cities into St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, I have my master's degree in European history from Loyola University in Chicago. And I guess I've been on this podcast for going on four years now. Um But today, we are going to be focusing on women's biographies from church history, which was actually a listener-suggested topic. But before we really talk about and dig into what we think about biographies of women in church history, it's, of course, a really good idea to define what we mean by church history. So a broad, widely accepted definition is 
looking at developments of the Christian church from the time of the apostles to the present. This can obviously cover a lot of different subgenres of history and not just theology. It touches upon politics, culture, social developments, and pretty much every aspect of history that you can think of. And you would assume that with a wide range of topical histories and over the course of 2000 years, that there would be quite a wide range of biographies for us to choose from. Unfortunately, with history being what it is, women have been largely erased or ignored from our records. Women in church history have historically been assigned certain stereotypes, which I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with if you think about it. We have the saint, the temptress, the missionary, the spiritualist, or the support system. And of course, there are always exceptions to those stereotypes, but because of their existence, it really limits the access to information that we have to create well-rounded and effective biographies of women who have helped develop our religion. And it has limited us to only look at women who are overtly religious when looking at women in church history. Women with political power involved in social movements or participating in changing the cultural landscape can also be a part of church history, particularly in Western culture and history. Um, some examples would be Susan B. Anthony or Coretta Scott King. Christian scholars, particularly female Christian scholars, have made great strides in developing this area of study in the last 20 to 30 years, but this is definitely an area that can still grow. So with that in mind, um, opening it up to our panelists, what interactions have you had with biographies or autobiographies and what are your impressions on women's biographies that are specific to church history? Um, I thought this was a really interesting question because looking back over it, I was surprised that, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I was surprised at how little exposure I actually had to biographies of really church history, period, was the first thing that, that I noticed that um, growing up in a Protestant non-denominational uh, church background, there there isn't a lot of emphasis on church history, unless there wasn't in the 80s and 90s. I, I think there's a little bit more now, but um, so that was one of the things that I noticed was thinking back through my childhood and education, there wasn't a lot of emphasis on church history particularly, so even less so was there any emphasis on uh, any kind of women in church history. I was thinking of uh, one group of biographies that maybe you might be familiar with, uh, the Sower series. They were, they're still around, but they're individual biographies designed for middle grade children based on different people of the faith for a very broad definition of what that means. They have a few women. There are 26 of them, of the books total, and there were four, three, three women that I had read when I was a child, Abigail Adams, Florence Nightingale, and Susanna Wesley. They've added two since then, Mother Teresa and Nahalia Jackson. Uh, but out of those you know, 26, there are five that are women, which I thought was interesting. And I don't know that I would recommend them now. I would have to go back and read them because 
as I recall, they're uh, extremely um, biased towards kind of over Christianizing maybe the um, the stories of people's lives in a way that they may or may not actually deserve. I don't know. I would, like I said, I would have to go back and reread those again. But that was one of my only exposures to any kind of biographies outside of something that I may have run across in uh, a history book. I was homeschooled for a while, so some of the history books that we used were Christian history books, and they might mention in passing somebody like Florence Nightingale or um, Clara Barton. But even then, you know, like you said, they fall into those stereotypes that, that you were describing. Um, the they, they come across as kind of, you know, Western skewed Christian, you know, versions of the, the history. Um, but yeah, that's, that's my only exposure with those, those biographies there. What about you, Victoria? My experience is pretty similar. Uh, I, I think, and I think you made a, a good point of saying that part of this is, is probably a Protestantism issue, um, and I would argue um, even more than that, a, a low church kind of anti-idolatry overcorrection. Uh, this is something that that Catholics, I think, are much better at in terms of the hagiographic tradition and, and the fact that saints' lives kind of build uh, this appreciation of religious biography to a certain extent into, uh, into the liturgy in a way that I don't think Protestants have. Like, I don't, I am aware of the Sower series, but as far as growing up, um, I think the only awareness of literature related to this, um, particularly as it um, deals with women, would be, uh, there was a, a Christian bookstore series that was like, X girls of the Bible, bad girls of the Bible, good girls of the Bible, um, untold stories of girls in the Bible or something was the other one. Um, uh, and these are also talking about women in the Bible and not girls. So set of problems there that we don't have time to talk about. But I did not really know, um, ha have a, any kind of knowledge of women in church history uh, until I got to graduate school and started secular graduate school um, and started taking uh, medieval and renaissance classes where we talked about things like the Troberitz tradition and read people like um, Julian of Norwich and Marjorie Kemp. Um, why haven't we done an episode on either of them, by the way, in the how many years that we've done this podcast? That's a ridiculous thing. We should remedy that problem. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Not today, but um, since there's been a lot of uh, biography interest, maybe we can do a, a series or something. But yeah, I, that is not something that I got from the church growing up at all, um, and not something that I knew was missing from my education until it was present in my secular education, which I think is also um, really interesting to think about, until I started taking um, women's studies classes and women's history classes and started thinking about, you know, um, how the things I was learning, like feminist historiography, could also be applied to uh, my religious life. So it, it took um, 
my secular education to point out that hole in my religious education. That's fascinating. Yeah, I kind of had the same experience, Victoria, where I didn't realize the gap in my knowledge until I, I went to college. Thankfully, I did have some really wonderful professors in undergraduate who pointed out women's role in history and uh, women in um, more cultural standing like Marjorie Kemp and Julian Norwich, uh, as you pointed out, that kind of started me questioning why I wasn't seeing these women in biographies or even just in history. Um, because growing up, probably because of my interest in history, I was exposed to more of a church history background. However, it was very male-centric, which is a failing of classical history, just as a rule. Um, history is a relatively young uh, branch of study. It's really started in the 1800s as an academic profession or academic pursuit. Uh, so it has been dominated primarily by men in that regards. Um, so I read biographies about Billy Graham and about um, Dr. Moody and uh, all of these church leaders, uh, the Wesley brothers. Um, and so my idea of church history had always been a bit skewed until I had to purposefully go out and seek these women and their voices and stories. Um, so with that in mind, uh, we did choose uh, two books, two biographies uh, today for us to kind of base our conversation off of. One is a chapter from The Hiding Place by Corey Tenbaum. Um, and the other is from Her Heart Can See, The Life and Hymns of Fanny J. Crosby by Edith Blumhofer. Ailea, uh, do you want to introduce our first book? Sure. Uh, the Hiding Place I, is its a very well-known book. I think most people are probably at least familiar if they haven't read it, but it tells the story of um, Corrie ten Boom's life from it very briefly kind of summarizes her childhood, but it mainly concentrates on her life as a young woman um, living with her sister and her father in their watch shop and gradually becoming more and more involved in um, resisting uh, the in influx of Nazi Germany as they begin to take over Holland and um, their, their work with, uh, rescuing, hiding um, people who are fleeing the Nazis, specifically Jews. Uh, they're working with the black market to get supplies. Um, and then ultimately their capture, their betrayal and capture, and then uh, their time in the concentration camps, um, which would eventually lead to the deaths of pretty much everybody in her family except for Corey, and then her return home and ministry that comes out of this um, interesting 
side note, uh, I've actually been to their house and got to see the actual hiding place where they uh, hid the the Jewish refugees from the soldiers. And uh, we went on a, a mission trip around Europe when I was in college. And one of the places we stopped was uh, Amsterdam and got to take a tour of the house. It was really, really interesting and very moving to see they had the candle in the window that Corey would use to show if it was safe for people to come and um, got to kind of hear the story while you're standing in the place is very powerful. So, Wow, that sounds fantastic. Like a, a really powerful experience. It was. Um, well, the chapter we read today was uh, the chapter about Ravensbrook. I believe it's chapter number 13. Um, reading through this chapter, what did you ladies, um, what was your response to it as a biography? Uh, do you think it was effective? Do you think that an autobiography is going to be better than a biography in its effectiveness? I mean, that depends, right? What, what do we think the goals of autobiography are? Um, also, this book, correct me if I'm wrong, is co-written with someone who is a professional author. Is that... Do yes, I have that right. wrong? Okay. So I, I'm not sure. I mean, biography, uh, biography, autobiography, memoir, these are tricky genres because you're talking about memory and narrative and how those things work together and um, it's it's difficult to discern what truth is in terms of do you want accurate memory do you want a formed narrative what's the relationship between the two um, and I, I do think those questions kept surfacing in my mind um, as I read this chapter. I haven't read the complete book in a really long time, probably since high school, I suppose. Uh, I, I read a lot of Holocaust-related um, histories in high school. I continue to be very fascinated by that period and just how human beings could be overtaken by such um, prejudice how it could become sort of part of the banality of their lives and so in researching that I read this book and I remember really liking it at the time and when I reread this chapter this week I kind of felt terrible while I was rereading it because what I kept thinking is like these do not feel like human people to me like they feel too good and too holy and like I understand that they were in a horrible situation that I cannot possibly relate to as a educated, privileged white woman with a roof over my head, you know, in the 21st century, but I, I really just found myself humbled, but, but before I was humbled, I was just kind of disbelieving, like, really, she's thanking Jesus for the fleas, like, really? It, it seemed that this was more a ministry project than a biography, which maybe is fine, um, but it, it seemed like the one um, the one pursuit overshadowed the other to me. 
Um, and I feel really terrible saying that, but that is my honest opinion. No, I think what you said at the beginning, what you were just saying is completely accurate about it depends on what the what the purpose is. Because I think uh, an autobiography is never going to be a scholarly report of someone's life who has been researched the same way that a biography would be. Um, it's going to have a message with it, right? It's what the the subject wants to portray to the world. And like you said, that's it's not wrong, but it is a completely different approach to looking at somebody's life than having somebody um, research and get, you know, first person, um, you know, sources and, and, and try to piece together from primary source documents, some, some construct of what their life might have been like. It's just completely different. If you're looking at it from the inside, I always think of the hiding place actually as more of a biography of, um, Betsy, her sister, because Betsy really is for Corey, at least telling the story, Betsy is the main character. And it's almost like Corey is the the reporter, the observer, who's telling us about how wonderful Betsy is. And and so she's naturally going to be protective of her. She's she's going to be um, maybe even a little bit, um, in, in hindsight, romanticizing some of this. We don't know. We weren't there, you know. And not, that's not to doubt, you know, Betsy's de- devotion or, or her, you know. Um, amazing ability to to turn everything into an opportunity to glorify God. But like you said, it is definitely seen through a lens that is a different lens than you would see if it were a third person looking in on the same life with these same, you know, pieces of information. Yeah, you almost, the ideal biography, you almost want a, a cross between the two where you want the intimacy that is gathered in an autobiography but you want the objectiveness that comes with a historian's practice. Um, I, I have to agree with Victoria. I, I started crying when I read this chapter because it's very powerful. It's very emotional. This is a biography that I just keep coming back to. Um, like throughout the years, I just come, keep coming back to reading it because it's a good book. It's a good story. But it's not necessarily factual. It's yes. not necessarily based on research. In fact, it's not based on research. Um, it's it's based on firsthand accounts, which anyone can tell you can be very um, misleading, right? Uh, especially when not countered with other first person accounts. And it was later in her life, right? This this book was written much later towards the end of her life. So that's going to color the accounts as well. This is not something that was written, you know, two years after she got out. This is something that was written when she was much older. Yes. Yeah. This was written later in life uh, because I believe in later chapters, she actually has the chance to address um, one of the soldiers yes. who guarded her in person yes. and have that powerful interaction with him where she forgives him mm-hmm. or comes to a moment of forgiveness. But even in this autobiography, we kind of fall into that trap that in my observation happens with a lot of women in church history where Somebody gets put up on a pedestal, and we're almost supposed to regard the book not as a biography or a learning tool, but as a devotional. 
And I'm not that, sure that's that absolutely that's, true here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a, a good um, tactic to take for all for all biographies for women in church history. Right. It's really, yeah, that's very interesting that you say that because one of the things I was thinking through when we were reading this chapter was that a, a biography should be able to treat its subject as a complex person who's capable of imperfections. And so often it seems like biographies of women, especially Christian women, women in the church, women in church history, um, they're, they're made to be... Um, virtuous. That virtue is, is much more heavily emphasized in biographies of women than it is of men. Men are allowed to have a complex past where, you know, like they could be slaveholders, but then also turn around and do something good for the kingdom of God. And it's like, well, well they were complicated. But for women, it's much more of a line that you have to toe where if you are found to be imperfect or if you're found to be unvirtuous in some way, then their entire experience is discounted unlike their male, male counterparts. And I, I think um, I think we definitely see that flatness with Betsy here. Um, not, yeah. not that it's not. I, I do think this is a great book. I think that people should read it. I was very convicted by it, particularly the, the passage in this chapter where um, they're about to go um, to the, the first uh, set of inspections and cleanings and they're taking their arrival clothes and giving them their prison dresses and uh, Corey is, is worried about Betsy being naked because she's already fallen ill and and Betsy says, you know, they, they took Christ's clothes too when he got nailed to the cross and Corey realizes that when Christ is uh, depicted with the sort of slung uh, cloth around his waist she said that's probably about the modesty of the artist you know he was naked because he was being humiliated and and we're naked because we're being humiliated and this is a thing that we share with Christ and that um, that comment about embodiment really really stuck with me and convicted me and it felt human and real um, but I I despite that feeling um, mostly in this chapter and from what I remember mostly in the rest of the book Betsy is not a um, a nuanced, terribly well-drawn human, and, you know, obviously their sisters, Corey loved her, she was an important person in her spiritual development, I'm not holding that against her as someone who is her family, like, that's, that would be a terrible thing for me to do, but if you're expecting, you know, a, a researched narrative with kind of rounded characters I, I don't think that's what you're going to get from this I agree um, and so we move on to shall we move on to our next book then sure so I think since we need to move on um, I will get us to the next book in our discussion which is a biography of the hymn writer Fanny Crosby. Uh, the book is called Her Heart Can See and is written by Edith Blumhofer. Uh, I am not going to say a whole lot about the book um, except 
to say that it is very long, over 300 pages, and very thorough. This is a book that is about Fanny, but also about A, her position in the context of the congregational music movement and her position in kind of the history of uh, the development of a particular strain of Protestantism. It's also about the context that shapes her as a person. Um, when the book gets negative reader reviews, it gets negative reviews because it's so context heavy. Um, I am perhaps biased. I love this book. I have read it um, probably at least twice in the past. I'm a big Fanny Crosby fan um, because when you grow up a Baptist girl with a physical disability. There aren't really a lot of um, role models for you within the church with disabilities at all, um, much less women with disabilities. Um, I mean, we have Helen Keller, whose religious history is interesting and, and too difficult to discuss. Um, right now, uh, but we do have Fanny, uh, and she is someone that I latched onto very early as a kid. So I've read this book several times. Um, I am a defender of it, though uh, I will be willing to talk about its flaws um, in a minute. But first, a brief biography of Fanny. Uh, she's born March 24th, 1820. She is not blind at birth. Um, but is blinded very quickly after. She's about six weeks old. She gets a very bad cold that causes uh, inflammation of her eyes. She is treated with mustard plasters by a quack doctor, um, and she goes blind. Uh, later researchers think that this could have been congenital blindness, but it, it certainly got um, blamed on this doctor at the time. Her family is very grounded in the faith, um, and her blindness causes her to develop a really keen memory in the absence of her sight. These two things together equal uh, a little girl who loves to memorize the Bible. By the time she's 15, she has more than 11 complete books of the Bible memorized, including all of the Gospels and the entire Pentateuch. Um, at which point her mother decides that she obviously is a very keen intellect and deserves to be educated, fights to get her accepted into the New York Institute for the Blind, which she attends. Uh, she excels there, um, is a really great student, and then eventually also an instructor. In 1843, uh, she becomes the first woman ever to lobby the Senate, when she speaks in favor of education and increased resources for the blind um, from her position as a teacher at the New York Institute for the Blind. I mean, think about that. 1843. So that is decades before women are allowed to vote in this country, and she's lobbying the Senate. That's amazing. Uh, she stays super grounded in the faith. She attends several churches, including one ministered to by uh, the very famous Henry Ward Beecher, um, relative, of course, of Harriet Beecher Stowe. 
um, who makes a weird cameo in the chapter of the book we will discuss later. Um, Henry Ward Beecher starts a congregational church music movement, and uh, she also becomes very well connected to the inner circle of the Wesleyan holiness movement, including a very famous Methodist theologian uh, and creator of the doctrine of Christian perfection, Phoebe Palmer, who may we maybe should also do an episode on. She's super interesting. Um, and more importantly, Palmer's daughter, uh, Phoebe Knapp, with whom Fanny eventually writes uh, one of her most famous hymns, Blessed Assurance. Uh, at that time, they're also palling around with this music publisher, William Kirkpatrick, uh, who is instrumental in Fanny's eventual fame. She writes hundreds of poems and almost 10,000 songs, so many songs that eventually she gets convinced to use a pseudonym by her publishers so that depending on what congregations select to include in their hymnals, um, there won't be hymnals that just have her name in them. That's how many songs she writes. Wow. Right? K kind of just unbelievable. Uh, some hymns of hers that you probably know um, Blessed Assurance, as I said, co-written with Phoebe Knapp. Praise Him, Praise Him, and To God Be the Glory are some of the most famous. Um, but really, I could sit here for five or ten more minutes and list hymns that all of you probably know. Uh, she marries Alexander von Alstein in 1858, and uh, at that point, as was custom at the time, resigns from her teaching post at the New York Institute for the Blind. She gives birth to daughter Frances in 1859. Sadly, Frances dies from what we now uh, think was sudden infant death syndrome uh, early in the first year of her life. Uh, biographers say that one of my favorite hymns, Safe in the Arms of Jesus, is about this event, um, but it's not something that Fanny really talks about, so we're not 100% sure. Um, and here's when things get super interesting. She and Van Alstyne stay married for decades after that, until his death, but they mostly live separately. Um, it's not acrimonious, it's very amiable. They talk, they write letters, they preach together on uh, multiple, fairly frequent occasions. Uh, but they, they have a sort of progressive arrangement. She signs her married name on all government documents, but he makes her promise him that she will uh, keep her maiden name publicly because she's already published uh, under it, and he wants her to get credit for, uh, for her work. So really sort of interesting, progressive in some ways uh, relationship. Uh, after her husband's death, some other major collaborations in her um, professional career, Ira Sankey and uh, Dwight L. Moody, who Leah mentioned earlier, helped popularize her work um, with their, uh, their evangelical pursuits. Even though she's famous as a hymn writer primarily, she considers herself primarily a mission worker, seeing her main ministry as composing music in service of the home missions and city missions movements for immigrants and the urban poor. She intentionally lived right next to what was 
probably the worst slum of Manhattan at the time because she wanted to be literally in the middle of the constituents of her mission field. There's some evidence that her publishers fleece her, that they take a bunch of profits and don't compensate her well. Her friend Will Carleton writes the first popular biography of her, um, which essentially puts forth this argument saying that she is being taken advantage of. Uh, because of her faith, they are um, taking her money and, uh, and, and using her kind of poverty um, and mission as a, a justification for that. She objects to this, sues him, says she agreed for the agreed uh, with the amount of money that she's paid monthly, and that she, you know, chooses to live below her means for religious reasons. Um, there's a, a fairly long-standing controversy about that, which you guys should read more about. Um, that happens in 1905. A few years before that, around 1900, she starts developing an irregular heartbeat and dies 10 years later in 1915 of a long-standing heart condition. Um, so that's my, my short uh, Fanny biography. Um, another thing I want to mention before we move into the, the chapter itself um, is a, a quote that you often see from her is, Do you know that if at birth I'd been able to make one petition, it would have been that I was born blind, because when I get to heaven, the first face that shall ever see gladden my sight will be that of my savior Jesus. So she is someone who is really interesting in terms of her position in the disability community because she's someone who uh, really kind of lives by the social model of disability before the social model of disability is a thing. She's someone who believes that people with disabilities to a certain degree or another have access to things that able-bodied people don't, that there's something about their disabilities that can make them special. For example, she attributed her strong memory to her blindness. She says that God, you know, took something away from her and gave her something else that she could use to to further the kingdom. So that's, um, that, that's really interesting in, in terms of a, a disability theory perspective. Um, and I'm going to stop talking and we can talk about the chapter now. Yeah, I agree that this book is really important and it is a really good book. Um, it's very heavy. Uh, I suggest getting the paperback. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it really is a testament to how much research uh, Edith Blumhofer is willing to put into her biographies. There are so many news articles and firsthand accounts and uh, quotes from the songs of, and poems, of course, that Fanny wrote. But there are some shortcomings as well um, that are also common in biographies of women. Uh, the and chapter that... This, this chapter, I think, is the like the biggest shortcoming of the book and as soon as you sent the pdfs i was like oh i bet i know which chapter she picks and i was right um <laughs> and i was uh simultaneously upset at you and uh and and very happy that you picked this because i think it makes a great point 
Um, yeah, obviously I have feelings about Fanny in this book, guys. No, absolutely. <laughs> Fanny, Fanny is a fantastic person. Like everything you read about her, I, I wish I would have been able to meet her back in the day because she just sounds like a wonderful person to get to know. She's not perfect, but she's just very intriguing. The, the little that we, the, parts that we do know about her do make her very human but there are some gaps that you know I, I'd love to hear from her firsthand but the chapter I chose is chapter five music it is about 20 some pages in the middle of the book and I believe she is named something like five times. Good, you counted. I, I wanted to go back and count. It, unless I missed, I think it's five times. I'm sure that's right. Or, or right around there. Um, and again, I, I know that Edith Blumhofer was just really trying to give really contextual history for Fanny. She even says so in her introduction um, that she is focusing more on the context to give more of a full history of Crosby. But that being said... Context is great. It, Research is great. This chapter is not about Fanny. Like, at all. Right. Exactly. And the book is about Fanny, so... Yeah, it really feels like this chapter belongs in a different book. Like, this this chapter belongs in a book about the history of congregational music, maybe? Yes. Or, or maybe even as an appendices. Um, yes, but I mean, yeah. this should have been a paragraph-length footnote. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I guess... Um, Victoria, you've been very vocal about it, but Elio... Uh, what was your response when you read this chapter? Well, my first response was I thought you'd sent us the wrong chapter. <laughs> you said you wanted us to read the chapter about the life of Fanny Crosby, and you sent this. And, I mean, you all know I sent a response like, I, did you send the right chapter? Because this isn't about Fanny Crosby. Like, It was so surprising to me. I've not read the book. And it was so surprising to me that, like you said, I, I kept looking for when it started to talk about her, and it didn't. And, and you get to the end, and... What was most surprising to me was that it wasn't even like like the depth of this much research into the life of somebody in a biography who isn't the subject of the biography is usually reserved for a spouse or a parent or a child where you would give extensive background into the life of somebody very near and close to them because it affects you know, their life and, and because you're going to refer back to that as you refer to them growing up and the, the issues of maybe their mother or something. But this, it's, it's a man who, who impacted two people who impacted her. It's not even really somebody who was close to her or who had that much direct impact into her life. And I, I, I was very confused as to, to why this much emphasis was put on this person in the middle of a, a biography about Fanny Crosby, who, like you said, has a lot to say about herself. There, there's plenty out there 
that's interesting and that's worth taking time for about her, I think you're right. I think as a footnote or as a, a reference to, you know, for more information on this person, read this other book that I wrote about <laughs> this man, um, I think would be more appropriate, but it seemed very jarring and very um, almost intentionally maybe to lend um, some kind of support to or uh, significance. Or I don't know why um, the author chose to to spend this much time on on this person. I mean, obviously they are connected to her life, but it just seemed so tangential that I was really kind of baffled. We we should say um, we should be specific and say that this chapter is about Lowell Mason, who really popularizes the congregational music movement, the idea that you're supposed to teach easily singable hymns to your congregation as a way of furthering the gospel and, and uh, opening their hearts to the kingdom more. Mason mentors these two guys, Root and Bradbury. Uh, Root starts the music education program at the New York Institute for the Blind, and Bradbury is eventually Fanny's publisher. The end. <laughs> that is what the chapter says, and its entire connection to her. So you did, could have written that did, chapter. Like, three, three sentences. <laughs> like, it's incredibly well-researched, but it's frustrating, because, like, Fanny is amazing. We don't yes. need this chain of men to prop her up. Like, we don't yes. need it. Yes. And this is something that we see in other biographies, right? Like this, this isn't just in this book. Um, Blumhofer didn't come up with this herself. It's something that is pretty prevalent in all, all women's biographies, whether we're looking at women in church history or just women in history, period, where you women need to be justified by their place in history in their relation to men. Yes, it's like it gives it a validation because they're connected to a famous man, which I think is one of the reasons that a lot of the, the women in church history that we do hear about or read biographies about are people like Susanna Wesley because they're attached to John Wesley either, or Abigail Adams because they're attached to John. They're, they're or allowed even to like St. Monica. Yes, yes. They're allowed to have a story because they're validated by the kind of umbrella of a famous man who already has a story. Yeah, absolutely. So in a way, these women are becoming footnotes in their own stories. Their stories are being overtaken by these men. So yes. even when we're reading a biography that is about a woman, very often it's usually about the men around her. Um, at least in my, in my perception, there are of course, there are of course exceptions to this. Um, and there are other chapters in this book that don't do that, too. Like, I, I, I want to be sure to take up for this book because I do love this book and I do respect its research so much. Uh, but I, I think it was important to, to talk about this chapter as well. Absolutely. This is a fantastic book that everybody should read. Like, it is wonderful. Um, it's just this one chapter, as you said, Victoria, that this is this is the major downfall of this book. This is the major um, flaw. But it also just highlights so strongly this 
this theme that continues through just women's biography as a genre. Um, and I think the litmus test is, does this happen in biographies of men? You know, do we get entire chapters of, of men who are three degrees removed, or of women who are three degrees removed from the male subjects and get, you know, all of this research into their lives in order to somehow validate the, the men's story? That I don't know that I've ever seen that in a biography of a man. Absolutely not. Would, would never pass peer review. No way. No. <laughs> If anything, important women in men's biographies also become footnotes, where if you're reading a biography about, say, Richard III, you're not going to get much information about his mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, even though she was this very B.A., fantastic woman who took on uh, the political dynamics of France and England to make sure that her son would become king. Um, she's going to be a footnote in his story. Or, like, everybody knows about Watson and Crick, but not everybody knows about Rosalind Franklin, who did just as much of the work. Yes, yes, absolutely. So how do you think we can address this in future research? What do you think good steps for listeners who might be considering writing biographies or looking for biographies to read um, should take. Know that women's history is a field and know that people are doing this work. Um, and, and theology too. Uh, in, in biblical studies, there are feminist theologians who are working really hard on um, revising kind of past um, places where we have overlooked women's contributions. Um, Lynn Kohick is a, a theological historian who, who I enjoy. I'll put a, a link to her latest book, which I just finished reading, um, in in the show notes, if I can remember to do that. She's and at Wheaton, isn't she? She was at Wheaton. She left. Oh, I think um, I took one of her classes. Oh, great. I yeah. did not know that you went there. <laughs> I did. Uh, yeah, I just finished reading um, her book, Christian Women in the Patristic World. Um, kind of blew my brain open this summer in a really fantastic way. Um, she's really good. She works on, um, or sort of around, the, the subfield of history, um, historiography, uh, though she is a, a theologian, um, she, she does a lot of work um, in feminist historiography. Historiography is, Leah, you're the trained historian among us, correct me if I mess this up. Um, historiography is sort of the history of how history becomes history, if I can make that more confusing. It's it's the idea of um, how we construct narratives, who gets included, who gets left out, and what those inclusions and omissions tell us about uh, the cultures that, that write histories down and, and how those histories come into being. Is that fair? Yes, that's a very good description. Um, so that, that'd be my advice, is to, to understand how historiography works and, and seek out the people that are trying to fill in those holes. Wonderful. Well, um, I think we should wrap it up 
there. Um, do either of you have some uh, suggestions for listeners who want to look more into these topics? I do. I am uh, currently in the middle of reading a really good book called Women in Church History, 21 Stories for 21 Centuries by Joanne Turpin. Uh, it's uh, just like the name suggests, it's 21 mini biographies broken up into 21 chapters, but it goes through the history of the church from first century all the way through the 21st century, one woman at a time, one story at a time. And it picks some well-known heroes of the faith, faith like Priscilla um, from the Bible, Aquila and Priscilla, or Queen Margaret. But it also uh, describes a lot of unsung heroes or lesser known um, women who worked in different capacities all throughout history. Some of them were benefactors. Some of them were the, the founders of the the first um, convents. It, it really covers a wide variety. Um, the author and the publisher are Catholic, so there's definitely a very heavy emphasis on the specific history of the Catholic Church and the women in the Catholic Church, which was a little bit surprising to me at first, but since a significant portion of the universal church's history is the Catholic Church, I still am gleaning a lot from the book. Um, so even if you come from a different denomination, uh, there's there's a lot that you can get out of it. And one of the nice things about it is that it is well-researched. There are uh, it's well cited. There are footnotes in the back for each chapter. So, and then there's an extra bibliography uh, on top of the the citations for further reading. So, I was excited to have a place to go from here. Um, and I also found for parents or teachers or anyone wanting to introduce this topic to uh, children, there's a picture book called Princess of the Re Reformation. Uh, Jean d'Albret, which is about uh, pr the princess who helped bring the Reformation to France. And I thought that was interesting because it kind of touches a little bit on the, the princess culture fascination of young girls, but puts it in light of an actual princess who did actual work besides just dancing around in ball gowns and looking pretty and, and all of that. So uh, that's definitely worth checking out. That sounds really interesting. Uh, I've, I've been looking for more, uh, more text to add to my uh, my saints' lives collection, so I'll I'll definitely check that out. My recommendation uh, is a bit of a downer, but I think uh, very necessary. Uh, this episode will drop later in September, but as we record it today, September fifteenth is the fifty-fifth anniversary of the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church bombing in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, in that bombing, four young girls—I believe all under the age of fourteen at the time—Addie uh, Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley. Carol Robertson and Carol Denise McNair were murdered by bombs planted by a local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, they were in their church attending choir rehearsal at the time. Since we've been talking in this episode about how to responsibly tell the stories of women of the faith, and since we live in a time that, as we all know, is still um, filled with racial violence, um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the the shooting in the Charleston church a few years ago, uh, houses of worship still are not safe from um, horrible racism. I wanted to take a moment to 
say these girls' names, uh, to remember them today, and to recommend a couple of texts uh, of different genres that I think do a good job um, telling their stories. If you haven't, check out the poem The Ballad of Birmingham by Dudley Randall. Um, there are also some, some really uh, lovely sung versions of that poem. And also the book Last Chance for Justice, How Relentless Investigators Uncovered New Evidence Convicting the Birmingham Church Bombers, uh, which is written by T.K. Thorne, uh, a retired uh, policewoman in Birmingham. And it is, uh, it's a, a really um, well-researched book as well. Thank you for reminding about us about that, Victoria. Um, my my suggestions are not that uh, that grim or or that serious for us now. Uh, I have two good biographies that I'd like to recommend to listeners. One is called Irina's Children, but Tilar J. Mazeo. It follows uh, the story of Irina Sendler, who is a Roman was a Roman Catholic uh, Polish social worker in the 1940s who saved um, something around 2,500 children from death and deportation in Nazi-occupied Poland. Um, it's wonderfully researched, wonderfully written. Uh, it is a newer biography as well. It came out in 2016. Um, so this is still gaining uh, recognition in the historical field. Um, the other that I'm going to recommend is The Life of Elizabeth I by Alison Weir, because I cannot get away from recommending some something regarding uh the British Renaissance. Um, Weir is great. Alice, I love her. I do too. That book is amazing. <laughs> Alison Weir is one of the best popular historians, uh, especially biographers at the moment. Um, I'd also recommend her biography of Elizabeth of York, but um, for more of the church history feel, I would definitely go with Elizabeth the first because our Western perception of the church would not be the same without this remarkable redheaded monarch. Um, there are, of course, many other wonderful biographies of women out there and biographies of women whose stories connect to church history in very unexpected ways. So I would also encourage listeners to just seek out the biographies of those women that do inspire them and if you don't find them, maybe consider fixing the problem and writing their biography for all of us to hear and enjoy. Uh, but thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Fulopic is our press liaison and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Ilya Danner-Grubbs and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, I'm Leah Henning. Tune in in two weeks 
when we'll discuss the film Legally Blonde. Until then, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things love.